We begin the news for November 19 with this piece on a balloon ascent in Tasmania. This afternoon, a very large number of persons assembled at Newtown to witness Professor Price make an ascent in his monster balloon from the Victoria Sports Ground. The majority of these were indisposed to part with the necessary shilling to gain admittance at the gate, and the Professor indicated that he felt considerably disappointed thereat. A considerable time was spent in collecting money from those outside, and the balloon, on being inflated, burst. This piece of news from the Tasmanian News in Hobart, Tasmania. For November 19, 1890, this was the news. This was the news is a fortnightly podcast that takes the news from this date many years ago and shares it with you in one news bulletin. I'm Broderick Matthews, bringing you the stories from a time when people paid good money towards inflation only to see it burst. Welcome once again to another episode of This Was The News, bringing you the news of 1890. Yes, November 19, way back in 1890, these are the stories that were dominating the newspapers. Kicking off our first big story today from the Herald in Melbourne, this piece talks about the dignity of Parliament over in New South Wales. Sir Henry Parks has at length recognised the necessity of putting an end to the scandalous scenes which have disgraced the legislature of New South Wales, and not one moment too soon has made proposals which, if accepted, will certainly improve the proceedings of the Assembly he leads. He proposes that any member giving utterances to charges of corruption or other serious misconduct shall be called upon to substantiate them or to withdraw them, with a statement that he made them unguardedly. Failing to do either, he is liable to expulsion and to disqualification from sitting again for a term of three or five years. Those provisions certainly have the merit of being severe enough to punish an offender without in any way lessening the power of Parliament over its own proceedings. It will still be open to the Assembly to decide that the statements by which a member may seek to substantiate his accusations are sufficient justification for his conduct, and it will still be possible for the Assembly to condone his offence and decline to pass the vote for his expulsion and disqualification. The weakness of the present system is that the Assembly has no law at its back when it expels a member for riotous conduct, and does so not because he has broken a rule, but because it chooses to exercise its inherent power. This is practically to make a law for each occasion, a very unwise method of proceeding. The necessity for legislation is obvious. Direct accusations of corruption have been very freely made against the Speaker, the Chairman of Committee and other prominent members. Statements that they had actually received definite sums of money for helping to pass bills which conferred valuable privileges upon individuals have been hurled at them openly upon more than one occasion. The member who has just been expelled for making the accusation is by no means the first who gave voice to it, and there appears to be some likelihood of his immediate return to the scene of the disturbance, in which case it would be infallibly renewed. Of course, the old objection to this class of legislation holds good, 
which is that Parliament is not a court of law and has no machinery for trying cases of this or any other kind. It is evident, however, that the New South Wales Parliament must face this difficulty or sink into hopeless disrepute, and human nature being pretty much alike all the world over, other legislatures will probably sooner or later be forced to adopt some similar means for the preservation of decency in debate. So good to see they were trying to preserve decency in debates in Parliament back in 1890, which has clearly led to the very decent proceedings we see in the House today. Across to bits and pieces of crime now, this piece in the Argus of Melbourne on the charge of attempting to rob a constable. At the Williamstown Police Court yesterday, Frederick Benson was charged with attempting to pick the pocket of Patrick Coffey, a constable stationed in Melbourne, with resisting Coffey in execution of his duty and with assaulting Constable O'Mara. Mr Furlong appeared for the defence. Coffey was present at the Williamstown races on the 10th, in plain clothes, on leave, and in the crowd while leaving felt a hand in his pocket, which he believed to be the prisoner's, although he could not positively swear it was his. He seized the prisoner, and the latter resisted violently, but with the assistance of Constable O'Mara and Mr Cody, a clerk in the penal department, the prisoner was secured. He struck O'Mara and kicked him severely. The evidence not being conclusive that it was prisoner's hand that was in Coffey's pocket, the charge of attempted robbery was dismissed. But on each of the other charges, the prisoner was fined £2, which was immediately paid. From one Melbourne crime to another, this piece in The Age talks of a bookmaker arrested. A minor scene was enacted at the corner of Flinders and Swanston Streets yesterday morning, where traffic was interfered with by a handsome cab that was being driven round the corner, but on the wrong side of the road. Constable Gordon, who was on duty at the point, remonstrated with the driver, but he found that two bookmakers, named Sam Allen and Morris Jacobs, were in the cab. The latter indulged in language that the constable regarded as offensive, so he arrested him, and lodged him in the city watch house on a charge of insulting behaviour. The accused at once deposited the requisite amount of £10 and bailed himself out to appear at the court again this morning. Finally, back to the Argus now, and this story from Albury on the curious strike of rouseabouts. Half a dozen rouseabouts who were employed at Mr James Mitchell's tabletop station have struck in consequence, it is stated. Now, struck here is the past tense of strike to go on strike. Yes, why did they go on strike? Well, the article continues to say it's because the manager refused to allow them to have sauce with their pudding. This station has always employed union men, but it is not considered likely that they will receive any partiality in the future. And for good reason. Who can eat a pudding without any sauce? And before we have a break, one more crime. This one reported in the Bowral Free Press and Berrimer District Intelligencer across in New South Wales on unwholesome eggs. While the Salvation Army were holding their usual open-air meeting at the corner of Bong Bong and Merigang Streets on Saturday evening, several highly flavoured eggs were contributed by some person in the crowd. 
The contributor had evidently a good supply, for they were thrown frequently and in many instances with unerring aim. One of the missiles, however, missed the mark, and the recipient proved to be Constable Carpenter. The constable did not like a soldier fall, but went for his man, and with the assistance of Constable Noble, promptly arrested him and lodged him in the lock-up. At the police court on Monday, the man... William O'Brien was fined 40 shillings with the usual alternative for the offence. 40 shillings for an egg is a pretty stiff figure. The article finishes off there with that lovely yoke. And on that note, let's take a short break. Drink the five o'clock tea. It is perfection. It will give every satisfaction, sold everywhere in packets and tins with the clock on the packet. Blended and packed by Nelson Moat and Company, who import more Indian, China and Ceylon teas than any wholesale distributing house south of the line. Tasmanian depots at 59 Elizabeth Street, Hobart and 37 Elizabeth Street, Launceston. GW Tazewell and Co. Agents. Three years ago, I injured my leg and kneecap. The knee was twice its natural size. The leg contracted and shortened, and I could not walk. Thought it would be an injury permanent, but I used St. Jacob's Oil. Both my leg and knee assumed their normal condition. Today, there's no pain, and I can walk as well as I ever did. Try St. Jacob's Oil. Back to the news stories now for this day, November 19, along in 1890, and I feel like there must have either A, been a lot of crime in 1890, or B, not much other news to report about, because these were all the interesting stories that I was finding in the papers. This next crime comes from the Maclay Argus in Kempsey, New South Wales, discussing a new swindle. A new system of swindling, which has been carried on in the border districts, has been brought under the notice of the police. A man, dressed like a commercial traveller, drives up in a well-appointed buggy to a country store and presents his card. He states that he is travelling for a firm which has establishments in all the principal cities of Australia, and that his firm can sell some articles cheaper than any other firm. A sample is in several instances exhibited. The man then states he wants a local agent and generally manages to appoint every local storekeeper to that position. If small quantities are purchased, he requires cash, but if a supply valued at £20 or upwards be purchased, a post dated is accepted. Representations are made that other storekeepers have given large orders. It is also stated that should the article not be found equal to the sample, the supply will be taken back by the firm. The storekeeper afterwards finds that the article is of a worthless nature and the firm reputed to be in Melbourne cannot be found at the address given. Several storekeepers in Nagambi, Murchison and Strathmerton have been victimised. So keep an eye out for that swindler, folks. From stories of crime, we're moving across to some animal pieces now. The Barrel Free Press again in New South Wales has this on snakes. 
During the visit of inspection to the site of the proposed water scheme by His Worship the Mayor and Mr Pridham on Saturday, Mr Campbell killed no less than three large snakes. Pedestrians in this particular locality should beware of these reptiles, as we understand they are very numerous. I'd also beware of the mare knocking off three snakes like that. Meanwhile, the Burrungong Argus in New South Wales reports on the grasshoppers. A telegram from Narandra, dated Friday, says grasshoppers are coming up the river in myriads. Both the Hay and Gerildery trains were delayed several hours yesterday, owing to the way the rails were covered with them. And back to the Barrel Free Press again with this story out of Mudgee on a flybite. A Mudgee telegram of Monday's date says, A few days since Mr Thomas Green, the proprietor of the Paragon Hotel here, was bitten in the nostril by a fly. As a consequence, blood poisoning set in, and Mr Green died yesterday in spite of all that medical aid could do for him. He had recently bought the property and fitted it as a first-class hotel. Hard to imagine so quickly blood poisoning and death from a flybite. But this was 1890. Let's take a short break. There is no doubt this terrible epidemic will assume very serious proportions as the winter approaches. The climate of Victoria facilitates the development of all kinds of germ life. It is therefore of the utmost importance that the guardians of the public health and private families should adopt remedies that will protect themselves and their families with Quibble's Infallible Disinfectant. It is really the only remedy on earth that has any influence whatsoever on the influenza germs and it was proved over and over again in Paris and London. In the establishment of McLean Brothers and Rig, Melbourne, three assistants were taken ill. The whole of the floors of the establishment were sprinkled with a water can with quibbles, disinfectant and water. This is done daily and there's been no further case of disease and even those in whom the disease was coming on have all recovered without leaving their duties. In other establishments in the city, where other disinfectants were largely used, half of the employees have been laid up causing the greatest inconvenience and a loss greater than would supply Quibbles Disinfectant for a lifetime. Purchase Quibbles Disinfectant. Well, we're almost coming to the end of the news for November 19 in 1890, but to finish off the bulletin today, we've got some health and home advice. Let's start off with the health piece. This from the Shoalhaven Telegraph in New South Wales on the effects of tobacco. The following emphatic opinions concerning the use of tobacco in the indulgence of the pipe are not calculated to soothe the nervous system of smokers to the extent claimed for the fragrant wood itself. The opinions are those of most eminent physicians. Dr Rush says of tobacco... It impairs appetite, produces dyspepsia, tumours, vertigo, headache and epilepsy. It injures the voice, destroys the teeth and imparts to the complexion a disagreeable dusky brown. Dr Darwin says, 
It produces disease of the salivary glands and the pancreas and injures the power of digestion by occasioning the person to spit off the saliva which he ought to swallow. Dr. Franklin says he never used it and never met with a man who did use it who advised him to follow his example. Dr. Berhove says... Since the use of tobacco has been so general in Europe, the number of hypochondriacal and consumption complaints have increased by its use. The 13th Annual Report of the Massachusetts State Lunatic Asylum expresses the following opinion relative to influences predisposing to insanity. Tobacco is a powerful narcotic agent, and its use is very deleterious to the nervous system, producing many serious diseases, including predisposition to insanity. The very general use of tobacco among young men at the present day is alarming and shows the ignorance and devotion of the devotees to this dangerous practice, to one of the most virulent poisons of the vegetable world. The testimony of medical men of the most respectable character could be quoted to any extent to sustain those views of the deleterious influence of this dangerous narcotic. Quite interesting in two regards here, the health effects of tobacco being reported and showing that it really is bad for you back in 1890, when later on tobacco seemed to get a bit of a kick and become trendy again. But it's also interesting to see the way the health care is reported and some of the things which uh, potentially aren't quite true, like tobacco putting you on this road to insanity, but certainly doctors trying to look after your health there. Finishing off today's bulletin with these pieces on advice for the house from the Express and Telegraph in Adelaide, South Australia. The rules of etiquette are not nonsense. They are to smooth the rough ways of life, of which there will be enough at best. One of the simplest and most efficient means of fumigating a room is by dropping vinegar slowly upon a very hot iron shovel. A cover from the kitchen range will answer very well. Nothing keeps out moths so well as paper. If every housewife, when she puts away her furs, pasted up all the crevices and round the lid of the box with paper, she would find her furs intact when unpacked. It's an excellent thing to give children, as soon as they arrive at about 12 years or even before, a little allowance for spending money and an account book. Show them how to keep an account of small expenditures and make it a condition that they do so if they wish to receive their allowance. There is no instruction more necessary to children than the instruction in the wise management of money. Children should be taught early what true economy is and to exercise their judgment, not their fancy, in making purchases. A little instruction now and experience, if need be, of the genuine discomforts of extravagance may save them from much suffering in later years. Every prudent housekeeper who has the ordinary conveniences at command should make her own jams. It's so easy nowadays to purchase any preserves from the grocers that many people do not think it worthwhile to make their own homemade jams. But homemade jams are better and cheaper than those obtainable at the shops, and jam making is so easy that even young cooks need not hesitate to undertake it. The most common causes of failure are not boiling the fruit long enough, which causes it to ferment, 
and boiling it too rapidly, which causes it to become candied. To make jam from any kind of fruit, first remove all stalks, then add about three quarters of a pound of sugar to every pound of fruit, and boil for about 40 minutes. Pour into jars and cover when cool. Store away in a cool, dry place. Preserves and jellies may be kept from mouldiness for years by covering the surface with pulverised sugar. And with that piece of advice on preservation, I think we've jammed enough news into one bulletin. For November 19, 1890, this was the news. spoken and edited by Broderick Matthews. All source material is taken from the reference newspapers and found online through the National Library of Australia's Trove website. Links to each of the articles mentioned today can be found in the show notes. The theme music is from Beethoven's Symphony No. 6 and sourced under public domain from newsopen.org. If you enjoyed today's show, make sure to subscribe and review it on iTunes, Spotify or your favourite podcasting app. This Was The News can be followed on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And any email correspondence should be sent to thiswasthenews at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to today's episode. The next episode will be out in a fortnight, released on Thursday, December 3. I'm Broderick Matthews, and this was The News.